Sarah moved to Sweden eight years ago to start a master's program at Linköping University. She ended up staying and did a PhD at the Child Studies Group also here at Liu. Now she works at the international office and she's here to tell you all about her long trip from South Africa to where she is today. My name is Rebecca and this is Work at Liu. Alright, so welcome Sarah. Thank you for coming today. Thanks for the invitation. And first things first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? So I am from South Africa. I grew up in Johannesburg and uh, studied there. My parents still live there. My yeah, family's there. And uh, moved to Sweden about eight years ago. Eight years ago. Mm. What made you want to move to Sweden? Well, I'd traveled a little bit in Europe previously. And um, well, I was really interested in Sweden in particular mostly because of uh, the emphasis on equality here. Um, mm. South Africa has quite high levels of um, inequality. Mm. And I was curious about the welfare state and a, a country that really emphasizes equality and curious to find out more about what that looked like. How did you end up at Liu specifically? Did you look at other universities or was just one the first one that popped up when you Googled? Um, actually, it was a strange story, but it was through a friend of a friend on Facebook who like happened to mention they, they knew I was interested in um, childhood sociology mm-hmm. and they mentioned that they had actually uh, done this program masters in um, in child studies here at Liu and uh, this person was like I don't normally I don't normally do this but I would really <laughs> <laughs> I think this might really be something that's uh, of interest to you so I looked into it and then I was like ah oh, I'd need um Yeah, it would be like paying fees for international students Mm. coming outside of the EU. So I thought, oh, there's no way I can afford this. And then um, I happened to just get an email in my inbox saying, full scholarships for studying in Sweden. So I was like, wow, this is a miracle. (laughs) I have to (laughs) apply for this. Um, So yeah, I I only applied to the EU. um, And I was really interested in this program in child studies and was really, really lucky that it all worked out. So yeah. So you came here initially for a master's uh, program. That's right. So uh, 2014. Uh, yes, that's it. Nice. Uh, so you mentioned that you'd been traveling in Europe, but had you ever been to Sweden before or was it just like completely new when you first got here? It was completely new. I mean, I remember traveling here and being like, oh my goodness, I'm moving to a country I've never even visited. <laughs> I hope this will all go well. But uh, fortunately, it was a good choice. So, yeah. So uh, now you are working at the international office, so that is completely different uh, pathways of how you originally started. How did you get to where you are today? That is an excellent question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, after I finished the master's in child studies, um, I was really keen to do a PhD Mm -hmm. and um, I'd got to know people in the department and felt really comfortable there. For me, it was really important to know I would be in a in an environment where I liked the colleagues and felt well supported and I did and fortunately there was a a PhD position that suited my background and qualifications so yeah um, as soon as I'd finished the master's basically I started the PhD the following semester. Wow that's like the the perfect career (laughs) continuation. It was really fortunate I must admit and it as well as I mean being a non-EU citizen um if I wanted to stay in Sweden, I would need um, a job, basically. Yeah, so this this also made it possible for me to stay, which was amazing. 
So So was that one of the reasons that made you stay or were there other factors that made you want to stay in Sweden? I think it was a combination of things. Um, While I was doing my master's, I I was studying Swedish as well. Um, So at least I had at least a a bit of a a feel for the language, which helped. Um, There's a lot that's very attractive about living in Sweden, I think. Um, I guess all the classic things like the the nature and... um, I think good work-life balance. Um, so there was a lot that appealed to me. Mm. Um, and the conditions for doing a PhD, I think, are probably among the best in the world, really. I mean, um, to get paid a salary, to get paid vacation leave, get a uh, contribution f- towards a gym membership if we want. I mean, it's just amazing conditions, really. So yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it was really a golden opportunity to to get the chance to do a PhD in Sweden. Yeah. And I guess maybe it was a little bit less scary to sk- to stay since you'd already been here for two years. That's true. I'd uh, <laughs> tested the waters a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that's good. I think that's a, a good way of uh, preparing your move because, mm. I mean, just trying to imagine moving all the way from the other side of the country, like a different hemisphere right. uh, completely, I think that sounds a bit scary. <laughs> yeah, and I think to, to move for the PhD from the beginning... It might have felt a bit uh, of a long commitment to from from not mm. having even been to Sweden because even moving here for two years without having been here before felt a bit scary. But uh, yeah, having that master's background, I'd sort of uh, prepared the ground a little bit to continue here. So when you first came to Sweden, were there any specific things that were like more difficult than back home or just different in general? I must admit that it really did take me some time to adjust to living in Sweden Mm -hmm. as as much as I love it now and could also appreciate a lot about it then. There was definitely some turmoil during the the first couple of years. I think, um, yeah, I mean, just moving to another country in general is a a challenging experience. Of course, of course. (laughs) Um, But I think, of course, I knew the winters would be um, cold and dark because everyone talks about mm. that. I think what surprised me was how long they were. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I've, I've felt that way as well because everyone always, everyone always uh, mentions like, oh, yeah, the winter is dark and the winter is dark. And you're like, no, no, it's fine. Like, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> um, and then you get here and it's like you don't even realize that it's affecting you. Yeah. And, and when you read uh, studies about like how it impacts you, but especially how it impacts someone that hasn't been in this environment before and maybe is used to a lot of sun. Mm. There is like, it really, really affects you. And mm. and I think it's only, you only really internalize it once you actually experienced it. Absolutely. So true. And like you, when you're not used to it, to, to have like the right strategies to cope with it or like to really embrace it, I think. I think mm. for me, I had a bit of a resistance towards it. I was just like, why is it so cold and rainy? <laughs> <laughs> As if I could just uh, wish it away. But then uh, I think starting to embrace it a bit more and like appreciate the nice things that can be enjoyed during the winter rather than just waiting for the summer to come. Uh, that's helped a lot, I think. Yeah. What are your favorite things to do in the winter? Uh, I've discovered skiing since moving to Sweden. So I like, um, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert, (laughs) (laughs) very much on the beginner level, but I think um, cross-country skiing was something I'd never imagined I would do, but absolutely love. Mm. Um, I think I only had really heard about like more like downhill skiing or, Mm, um, 
So it wasn't really like a familiar concept to me. And then it sounded like a very strange thing to do to like walk on skis. Yeah, and only the front of your foot is attached. Right. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I I imagined that the skis would be like slippery, like downhill skis. And I was like, how do you even (laughs) move forward? (laughs) But now I discovered, no, they're they're quite sticky with wax on the bottom. So you can get some grip. And yeah, lovely way to be outside in nature. All right. So here's your tips with Sarah Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) Follow me. Um, Anything else that you like to do in the winter? Maybe something, I don't know, how to get up in the morning, especially. (laughs) Oh, that's a tricky one. I mean, I think um, those like daylight lamps have helped me actually. Um, Like you can get um, sort of like a a wake up clock that um, gradually does like a little sunrise for you, which can be quite nice. Um, trick the I've brain of those. Yeah, trick the brain into thinking it's daytime. Well, it is actually daytime, but trick <laughs> the brain into thinking there's sunlight. <laughs> True. I actually have found that quite helpful, and even just having like a daylight lamp on my desk, just the the brightness I find uh, gives me a bit more energy, and uh, yeah, that's been helpful for me. Awesome. Mm. Uh, was there anything else that surprised you about Sweden? Maybe cultural differences or anything like that? Oh. Um, there must be uh, so many, I think. <laughs> I think having been here for eight years now, I think I've gotten used to a lot of them. So they're they're not as visible to me now as they maybe once were. Are you an internalized Swedish person now? I think I have <laughs> become, you know, a funny thing that comes to mind now <laughs> when I uh, was a master's student. And um, yeah, I had one Swedish friend on our course. And um, I remember once we were having cake and I was cutting the cake and I cut like a uh, Basically, I think there were like six of us and I basically cut the cake into six pieces. And she was like, wow, that's like international size portions. And I was like, what do you mean? There's six of us. Of course, we cut the cake into six pieces. And now I have now naturally become uh, yeah, institutionalized into small portions. <laughs> and when I was with my sister the other day, I cut this tiny piece of cake and she was like, is that a Swedish size portion? And I was like, I guess it is. <laughs> Very moderate. Yeah. I've also heard that it's rude to cut cake for other people because everyone wants right. to cut their own portion. Yes. And if you cut portions for other people, that's like perceived as maybe not rude, but just like slightly of like, ah, oh, I would have liked to cut that my own so cake. That is so true. It's like not respecting their their agency somehow. Or yes, yeah, it's, like, it's like maybe they want a lot of cake. If maybe they want a little bit of cake, they don't want to be judged about it. Honestly, I'm on board with that. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's a good point. I think, um, and that's probably something that I've had to adjust to a bit of like, um, to me, it would in some way feel a bit rude to like only serve for myself and not serve for others. But now I can see the other True. perspective as well. Like <laughs> how presumptuous of me to assume you want such a big piece or such a small piece. Or cake at all. Or cake at all. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you're a Swede, um, you most likely want some cake. I feel like <laughs> that is definitely something I've learned about Swedish people as well. Fike is a cornerstone of Swedish society. <laughs> Um, but uh, talking a little bit about uh, bureaucracy, uh, did you face any difficulties specifically there? Since you're coming from a country outside of Europe, mm. I think it's always nice to explore a little bit that aspect as well. Because mm. I've noticed that in some aspects, especially with visa processing, like it can be quite a, an annoying process. Mm. Mm. That's a good question. Um, I remember when I applied to, well, this is a, as a master's student applying like through university admissions, I found mm. the process really smooth in the sense that you could, you had like this centralized system instead of having to apply individually to different universities, mm, you sure. just had everything in one place. And I thought that was great. Um, but once I arrived in Sweden, um, one thing I remember being challenging, well, of course, the person number, like your person number, I guess, yeah, your is personal number. 
personal number is uh, such a a key thing to have and life is quite challenging in Sweden if you don't have one because you sort of yeah. don't really exist in the system or the system can't really process you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that was um, kind of a luxury for me being able to get a, a person number relatively easily but I know I had a lot of friends who didn't get there so so easily or so quickly and then uh, they had a lot of struggles. Um, even opening bank accounts and things like this can be quite challenging. Um so yeah, learning to navigate the, the a new system in a new country does take some time, knowing where you have to have registered and um, the tax agency. and um, But I found um, in terms of like renewing visas and things, um, yeah, it was a bit of a hassle in the sense of like every year or sometimes every two years having to renew the visa. Mm. Um, but it usually wasn't too bad. It was just a matter of um, going to North Shopping and uh, getting fingerprints and photographs taken and then the card would be issued. Something that was really frustrating, though, with um, the residence permit was it would often expire just before the summer and then uh, you'd have to wait until your new one was issued, which would sometimes be after the summer, meaning you couldn't travel over the summer, which yeah. is quite frustrating. Yeah. Sweden doesn't really work a lot during the summer, I've That's noticed. That's right. <laughs> Lots of businesses and universities and, and public establishments in general, I feel like they, they close down pretty tightly during the summer. Very much so. So if you uh, submit your application just before the summer, you're going to assume that uh, no one's going to look at it until like August. <laughs> well, I think that's a really good tip. It's yeah. like uh, make things well in advance and uh, hopefully they'll look at it before the summer. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so going back a little bit, um, I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about your PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, what group was it with and what was it about? You mentioned like child studies, gender mm-hmm. studies. Mm-hmm. That's right. So my PhD was in the Department of Child Studies. So um, mm-hmm. at Linköping University, we have um, something called TMA, which is an institute for thematic studies, mm-hmm. um, which was really one of the first in Sweden to start doing really interdisciplinary work. Uh, so it's a it's a really interesting and exciting place to be. So instead of studying, um, say, sociology or history, they rather focus on themes like gender or childhood or um, the environment and then study it from many disciplinary perspectives. So um, with my master's in that background, um, I was able to continue. Uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm quite interested in photography and um, visual aspects of life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, together with my supervisor, I um, came up with the topic of looking at um, a photo exhibition called Swedish Dads, which uh, showed Swedish fathers on parental leave at home with their children, young children. And uh, this was actually an exhibition I'd come across while I was a master's student and uh yeah, it was something I was quite aware of, of uh, the opportunity for taking parental leave in Sweden being um, really something that's a, a great advantage of the country in general. But I think uh, specifically encouraging fathers to be very actively involved with their children and um, sharing the, the the workload at home with, with mothers. Uh, it's a really uh, interesting aspect of Swedish society that has sort of built up over really decades, I think, from, from about the 1970s. Um, and seeing dads walking around with pushing their prams and being really uh, involved with their kids is something really nice to see and uh, that the the state provides good conditions for that was something that was really interesting for me. So I studied partly this exhibition itself and how it was produced. Um, I interviewed the photographer and then I learned as I went along that uh, this exhibition was circulated around the world through the Swedish Institute and Swedish embassies. So I, I became interested in how, how this exhibition traveled and what was 
what it was that was traveling, the the norms and ideals and values kind of embedded in this exhibition, mm. particularly to do with, well, of course, fatherhood and parenthood, uh, as well as childhood. Um, so what was sort of implicitly and explicitly communicated through these photographs and the, the texts that accompanied them. And what became very interesting was that many of the countries that hosted the Swedish Dads exhibition also produced local versions of um, photo exhibitions featuring local fathers, such as Zimbabwean dads, Chinese dads, um, Brazilian dads, and so on, which uh, was also very interesting material for me to look at. So yeah, this was uh, some of the topics I, I covered in my in my thesis. Did you find anything particularly interesting that you'd like to share? Well, I think um, coming from a country in in the global south, I'm I'm quite aware of how um, how influenced we've been by by things like colonization and um, many of the ideas and norms and ideals that we treat as as standard often come from uh, more of a European context or middle class context, but get sort of um, treated as something that should be applied universally. And I think that's something that I was I was interested in exploring. So. Um, Yeah, I, I was interested in seeing the ways that um, alternatives could be provided. For example, in in African countries, it's less of a, a nuclear. Okay, I'm speaking in generalizations here, <laughs> but um, maybe less focus on a, a nuclear nuclear family system, but more of an extended family system where um, caregivers could be aunts or uncles or even people unrelated but members of the community. Um, So this uh, this provided a, a kind of an interesting counterpoint to the Swedish dad's model, which kind of assumed a kind of a two-parent nuclear family model mm. that was supported by the state. Whereas in many other contexts where there's less parental leave available, um, you, people draw on a larger community and network to to ensure that their kids are taken care of. Mm. That's really interesting. Mm. Thank you for sharing. I think mm. that, that's really nice. And I think um, at least I had heard about like this parental leave being like shared between mother and father in Sweden. I think I've seen that in like newspapers in Portugal and everything mm. um, that it's mentioned quite a lot. Mm. Um, but I think it's very nice that there's actually people out there setting that. Yeah. Yeah. I love knowledge. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me, the most interesting thing is that now you're, you're not working in academia at all. So you're working at the international office. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you do there? That's right. Well, I, I guess you could say I sort of still have a foot in in academia as well as working at the international office. Uh, so at the moment, I work part time at the international office as an international coordinator mm -hmm. with a focus on um, Linköping's uh, university's collaborations in southern and East Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so that's um, an assignment I received about a year ago, which was a, a really exciting opportunity for me. Um, And it, it connects a lot to my, my interest and my background, but it is, is still a different kind of work from what I was doing, of course, as a PhD yeah. student. Uh, so for me, it's been really stimulating and interesting, and it's been a good challenge. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's it's quite nice to hear that like you can move within Linköping University a little bit as well. So it's not just PhD students. I hear, I think we hear a lot about PhD students, and we talk a lot about PhD students on this podcast as well. So I think it's very nice to hear about someone an international um, staff member that's not necessarily doing a PhD, uh, but working at the international office, which yes. is very close to home for me as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's been quite nice because um, in some way, I hope I can sort of connect um, people who are working more in academia as researchers and teachers and the more sort of administrative and management side of the university to help them sort of talk to each other and understand each other. Because uh, sometimes um, 
they can sort of exist a bit separately from each other. Yeah, I I mean, keyword communicator, so. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And coordinator, so it's it's not an easy job for sure. No, but it's a a fun one. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Um, do you know if you have like any plans for the future? Do you know if you're planning to stay at Liu? Have you ever considered like maybe going back to South Africa? Even is there any plans at all in the future, or just you know <laughs> we're good, we're yeah. staying? <laughs> yeah, um, I think I've uh, considered a, a few different options. Um, at the moment, I'm teaching part time at um, Remeso, which is the um, department in Shopping that works with migration and ethnicity studies and uh, that's been a really interesting department for me to connect with uh, so I've been uh, supervising some master's students and bachelor's students um, which has been really stimulating for me and uh, draws draws on my interests and background in, in a few different ways so I think I enjoy being um, in a new environment and um, meeting different people and seeing how they approach their their research topics and teaching subjects uh, so that's uh, something I would like to continue doing is doing teaching um, as well as working at the international office. Yeah, Sounds like you do a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like the combination and the, the variety, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, one final question that I wanted to ask um, because it might, it might be important. So you're, for your PhD, it was still like an English-speaking environment, but I think for the international office, it was more of a Swedish-speaking environment. Is that correct? That's a good question. Um, actually, when I started doing my PhD, everything was in Swedish. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it was a completely Swedish environment, which was kind of interesting because I was in the same department where I did my master's. The master's was in English. Yeah. Um, but it was sort of a decision that um, once I started the PhD, we would sort of switch to Swedish. Oh, okay. And um, although it was quite tough the first year and yeah. I... I would say for a lot of the time I was understanding about half of what was going on. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. It was kind of a good trial by fire because um, after that I really was able to like function in in a Swedish context and reply to emails and be at a meeting and contribute things in Swedish. Um, So I was lucky because I had a bit of a transition phase where although everyone was speaking Swedish to me, I would often answer in English still, mm. yeah. um, but that actually worked really well. And then gradually, as I felt more comfortable, I would slowly, you know, try to say things in Swedish a bit more and see if anyone was laughing at me. No one did. So then I was like, okay, that was good. <laughs> and uh, in a way, I actually really appreciated my colleagues being willing to speak Swedish with me mm. um, because, of course, it's easier to to switch to English in, in many ways. But uh, that really helped me to to integrate in Swedish society and the Swedish uh, work environment much better in the long run yeah I, I guess in in some ways it can be a double-edged sword it's mm. nice when people speak Swedish to you because you can practice mm. but at the same time especially in the beginning you're probably going to be understanding about half mm. so yeah and of course you want to participate in the conversation but you want to learn Swedish as well so I guess it's a hard balance to strike definitely and I think it can be uh, really helpful when people ask like do you prefer Swedish or English because um yeah, maybe people have different preferences. Um, and for me, I was really grateful when people were willing to bear with me with my uh, slightly broken <laughs> Swedish. Um, and it really helped me improve over time. And it means that even today I'm, I'm able to teach in courses that are in Swedish, mm. um, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't kind of been forced to to learn the language and to use it. So how many, how much time, like more or less, did it take you to be comfortable in, in speaking Swedish? 
Oh, am I even really comfortable today? <laughs> that is the <laughs> ultimate question. <laughs> um, I took it pretty gradually. Um, I, I guess it also depends so much on who you're speaking to. Like of course. When I first moved here, while I was doing my master's, I used to do a bit of um, au pairing and babysitting. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kids I was looking after were Swedish. And I used to practice speaking Swedish with them because... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Kids don't judge you. Well, they kind of do, <laughs> but it's. <laughs> but I feel like uh, kids are very open about their judgment. Exactly, it's so more like, why do you say that word so funny? Exactly. It's like, oh, okay. Was so I saying if it wrong? they judge you, they will say it to your face, <laughs> and you know they will not say anything behind your back. Yeah, totally. And they kind of became my best teachers because once they understood I was trying to learn something that they knew more about than I did, then they kind of wanted to teach me, and it was really Aww, sweet. That's so sweet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So for just one final question, just to uh, make sure that I understood it, like for your, your international office job, oh no, there goes the light again. <laughs> for uh, the international office job, uh, you were already like pretty fluent in Swedish. Uh, was it that requirement for the job or was this something that you would have been able to do in English as well? I do have colleagues at the international office who um, prefer to work in English mostly. Uh, so I think it would have been possible. Um, And I, yeah, even sometimes in meetings, we kind of do a bit of a swinglish um, where some speak in Swedish and some speak in English. So it is possible. And I guess because it's um, an international sort of environment, mm. it can be even an asset to feel comfortable speaking English. It is the international it office. It is the international <laughs> office. And um, sometimes I've been encouraging my colleagues sometimes to have more events in English to make them more mm. accessible to, to students and, and so on. But um, yeah, I think it would have been okay for me to not be totally comfortable in Swedish but I think generally speaking on the Swedish labor market it's a big ad advantage unless you work maybe in tech or specific industries yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To, to be able to speak Swedish. I've heard the same that is if you work in tech like in Stockholm mm. like in some sort of big company then most of the staff is going to be international anyways mm. um, but yeah I've been told that the most useful is that if you work on your Swedish even mm. though it's hard. Mm. And connecting with people, I think it's always nice to speak to someone in their native language. You kind of connect mm. in a different way um, and it helps you understand kind of the culture and the context in a, in a deeper way, I would say. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's worth it, worth the struggle. <laughs> All right. So any final tips or advice for anyone that's applying or thinking of applying to a job here, any job, PhD student, Leo staff member? Um, do you have any like final tips? Mm. Uh, well, I guess we've talked quite a lot about speaking Swedish and I, I would encourage people to give it a go and, and mm. even to try speaking to people before you feel ready because I think sometimes we can be a bit like shy and mm. be like, oh, okay, I'm going to wait till I've perfectly mastered the language before I try speaking to anyone. Yeah, it's the perfectionism, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, and just to kind of accept sounding, you know, a bit silly sometimes and it's okay and that's the way we learn uh, and just to start speaking as soon as possible and people often appreciate uh, yeah that you're you're making an effort um my other tip would be to uh to make sure to go outside even when the weather is horrible <laughs> <laughs> it'll do you it'll do you good otherwise it's easy to get a bit of cabin fever i think so yeah, yeah. it is a learned habit today mm. is quite rainy and I, mm. i still bike to university even oh. though it is quite rainy impressive but yeah <laughs> it's it's been a, a while since i've been here so i've gotten used to it because if you never go out when it's rainy 
you're just never gonna go out. So it's gonna be quite a large portion of the year. Exactly. <laughs> so you just kind of have to live with it, and yeah. it's fine. I've I'm a complicated plant house, and I've been watered today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in today, Sarah. I I think this was really insightful, and I mean, you can give insights both on what it's like to be a PhD student, master student, and someone working at the international <laughs> office. So I really hope that anyone listened, ha- anyone listening has learned a lot because I definitely have. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Rebecca. Yeah, thank you for coming. It was really nice. Thanks. You've listened to Work at Liu with me, Rebecca, and this episode's guest, Sarah. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes and check out Linköping University's vacancies page if you're interested in applying for a position here.